Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series called Revealed, a study of Jesus in the Old Testament. Our hope is that our eyes will be open to see that all scripture points to Jesus. Thanks for joining us. Question. What are you looking at? Where are you looking? What are you looking at? We're going to talk about looking today. And uh, we're going to actually do that by going to a story in the Old Testament, but also looking at how Jesus references it in the New Testament. So I want to invite you to turn to Numbers 21. We just again looked at the overview of Numbers 21 through that video. But it's again, it's on page 7, uh, excuse me, 107, if you're getting used to uh, the black Bibles there in the seat rack near you. If you're using your own Bible, Numbers is the fourth book of the Bible. We're going to look at Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9, in just a second. Now, why are we spending time in the Old Testament? Last week, Steve launched our new series called Revealed. And uh, you'll see the subtitle is Jesus in the Old Testament. We have banners up here on both sides. We also passed out a fold-out last week uh, that if you didn't get it, I believe there's some at the doors as well. You could pick one up. And inside this fold-out is the different places, just some of the different places that Jesus is referred to in the Old Testament as far as being a fulfiller of those things. And uh, we also passed out uh, stickers that you can put inside your Bible. Um, That's what I've done with mine. You may not be able to see it all, but the different series that we've had, I stick those inside my Bible just to remember where we've been. If that's helpful to you, I think there's stickers as well at the back door. But we want to just continue looking this summer for 10 weeks at 10 of the places in the Old Testament where Jesus talked about how he came to fulfill those stories, those events. So uh, again, today we're going to look at the bronze serpent. And if you're following along in the notes, here's what I want you to see. Here's Jesus' claim. Jesus' claim is that the Old Testament scriptures testify about me. The Old Testament scriptures testify about me. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, there's the God of the Old Testament and there's the God of the New Testament. What we saw last week is that The Old Testament and the New Testament are one story. They're God's story of redemption. And therefore, it's not the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament. It's the living God who's been working through both. Obviously, he's continuing to unfold progressive revelation of himself, ultimately coming to its pinnacle in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is explaining to people here on earth, while he was here on earth, look, The Old Testament scriptures point to, testify about me. Look, here's one verse in John 5, 39, when he talked to the religious leaders one day. Here's what he said to them. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. In other words, you're looking to this for eternal life instead of looking to me. These these simply point to me. Now, We finished the the Gospel of Luke just a couple weeks ago. And as we are finishing in chapter 24, the last chapter, Jesus, after he rises from the dead, appears to uh, several different people, and he tells them something very similar. Let me just show you three or four verses from that. Luke 24, verse 27 is the first one. 
he comes alongside these two walking on the road to Emmaus and says this, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to these two people what was said in all the scriptures, in all the scriptures concerning himself. By the way, in those days, all they had was the Old Testament. So he takes them through that. Now, here's verse 32. When they got done listening to this Bible study of their lives, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? We're hoping that during this series, as we see how God revealed himself both in the Old and New Testament, that you will find your hearts burning with gratitude and joy and just understanding where you find yourself going, this is life to me. This is helpful to me. Now, verse 44 and 45, again, he makes an appearance to his disciples. He says to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses. That's the first five books of the Bible. The prophets, again, that's the majority of the Bible. And the Psalms, that's the rest of the Bible. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. So here's what we want to do this morning. If you're following along, uh, he opens our minds to understand the scriptures. If you're following along, he opens our minds to understand the scriptures. Why are we doing this series? So that our eyes may be open to see that all of scripture points to Jesus. And as it points us to Jesus, that we might find life in his name. That we might turn to him for life. And so we want to just do that in just a minute. Now, uh, let me just set up Numbers 21 first by telling you how Jesus refers back to Numbers 21 in a conversation he had with a religious leader named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. I've listed in that second gray box the comments he makes that I want to read, and then I'll read a little bit more of it before we look at Numbers 21. So let's read it together there. Uh, Before we do, let me just say, here's the background. One of the religious leaders, we just went through the Gospel of Luke, so we noticed that many of the religious leaders of Jesus' day were against Jesus. They did not like what he said, they did not agree with him. They had not been able to see in the scriptures that a Messiah would have to suffer. They did not like the things he said to them, and so many of them opposed him. They were the ones that actually asked for his death. But there were some who believed, and there was one who was hungry. His name was Nicodemus. The Bible tells us he came to Jesus under the cover of darkness. Why? Because you don't want to necessarily let your comrades know that you're checking Jesus out. So he comes to Jesus, and Jesus, he says this. He says, it's obvious that you've been sent from God. No one could do the things you're doing unless you came from God. And Jesus cuts right to the chase and says, let me just tell you something. You'll never see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And he's going, born again? What do you mean? And then he says to him, you must be born again. No matter how religious you think you are, you must be born again. And only the Holy Spirit can do that in your life. So Nicodemus is going, like, how is it possible for me as a grown man to go back into my mother's womb? And he's not getting it. And Jesus says, you're one of Israel's teachers and you don't even understand these earthly things I'm telling you. How could you possibly understand heavenly things if I were to tell you those? He says, no one's gone into heaven except the Son of Man. He's talking about himself. And then he says these words, verse 14 and 15. Let's read them out loud together. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up 
that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now, I don't know if you know this, but right after that comes the most famous verse in the Bible for most people. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The implication here is that we're all perishing. But that if you believe in his son, you can have eternal life instead of perishing. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Goes on and says several things, and the last verse in the chapter says this. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Now Jesus says this incredible thing to a Bible teacher. He says, for just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And Nicodemus had to chew on that for a while. And he had to review in his mind that story from the Old Testament. So that's what we're going to do this morning. And we're going to see what did Jesus mean and how does that affect the way we look. So let's pray that God will open our eyes. Now, Lord, we just acknowledge that unless you open our eyes, unless you reveal yourself to us and open our minds and our hearts to the scriptures that testify about you, that we will miss it, that we will miss it. So I ask that you would be very generous and gracious to us today, that we might encounter you, and that you would be our teacher most of all. In your name we ask, amen. Okay, so let's uh, look at Numbers uh, 21, verses 4 through 9. You ready? I'm going to ask you to read verse 8 in that first grade box when we get to it. Here we go. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea. Again, this is the people of Israel. They've left Egypt. Moses is leading them, and they're in this journey. They've been traveling for 38 years already away from Egypt to go around Edom, But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. They're talking about the manna that God had provided from heaven every day for 38 years so far. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people. And many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Would you read verse 8 with me in that first grade box, please? The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. Verse 9. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Now that day when Jesus told his disciples the different places in the Bible that spoke about him, I'm sure he spoke about this passage. 
because he also had shared it with Nicodemus. But this is one of those places, and it's a very strange story. So how are we to understand it? Let me just walk through it quickly, and then we'll try and see the applications. First, what I want you to see, we didn't read the first three verses of this chapter. And by the way, this event, this historical event, happened 1,400 years before Jesus came on the scene. So God is not afraid to take his time unfolding his story of redemption. But this is yet another example of how he was redeeming his people, even though they were rebellious. So notice, first, after God delivers the Israelites, they speak against them, if you're following along. After God delivers the Israelites, they speak against him. The first three verses actually show us that one of the first major victories they've had against their enemies is because God graciously delivered them. So have you ever noticed that sometimes after one of the greatest wins in your life can often come one of your greatest falls? And the Israelites here had just begun to experience victory, and as they did, they lost sight of God. And they begin to speak against them. If you're following along, what we're going to see here is that grumbling leads to serious consequences. Grumbling leads to serious consequences. That's the word that gets used a lot in the book of Numbers. I was just reading, again, different sections of Numbers this week. You already saw from the video how things kept going from bad to worse. But the grumbling, the complaining, chapter 11, chapter 14, chapter 16, chapter 20, chapter 21. Now, if you're God and you're providing for these millions of people in the wilderness and you provide every day what they need to eat, and you've already just provided water when they didn't have water, and you've provided deliverance from enemies, after a while, would you get upset? Do you believe God gets angry? God gets angry. But God's not like a human being that gets angry. He's not like a parent that suddenly backhand, backhands a kid without warning. Not that kind of angry. He's not someone that has a short fuse, not that kind of angry. God gets angry. He's unbelievably patient. But when he gets angry, he's just and right to get angry. His anger is never out of control. His anger is always meant to chasten us, discipline us, bring us to our senses. He's the kind of parent that's not over permissive, but not abusive. His anger. And they, he, so let me just show you another place where they had grumbled. And this is, uh, again, Numbers, 20, Numbers 14. I've listed it out to the right. So he says this to Moses. How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In the wilderness, in this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years or, or, or more, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. So you ever wonder why the Israelites wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, even though it was an 11-day journey from Egypt to the promised land? Because they grumbled. And God knew that they were never going to be able to be ready for the promised land if they didn't learn how to depend on him, if they didn't learn how to trust in him. Last week, someone came up to me and asked a great question. They said, why did God keep Adam and Eve from going back into the Garden of Eden? 
That seems kind of like mean to me. And I said, actually, that was a tremendous gift of grace. Because as we saw, in their sinful condition, had they eaten from the tree of life, they would have lived in that condition forever. God was actually protecting them. That was actually an act of mercy. When God disciplines us, when God chastens us, it's actually an act of mercy in order to keep us from becoming worse. It's actually something that's meant to build us rather than destroy us. And so grumbling, anytime we grumble against God, it's a serious deal. Now, as I read this passage this week, I don't know what the application will be for you, but one of the applications for me was the Lord just put his finger on my grumbling. I don't know about you, but I, I, I have all kinds of first world problems. Do you know what I mean by that? They're not real problems. Compared to people that have real problems. And yet I have gotten such a sense of entitlement sometimes that I walk around and I grumble. I grumble in my car about the person in front of me. I grumble to my wife and with my wife. I grumble about the way that a sports team's playing. I grumble a lot. I grumble because sometimes I think God owes me more. And what grumbling is, is at its ugliest, it's just plain, old-fashioned ingratitude. It's, it's a sense of entitlement at its ugliest. And therefore, think about what they were doing. This is the very God that has good plans for them, that has provided for them every step of the way, and they speak against him. If you want to know what sin is, sin is being against God because you want your own way or because you want more than he's given you. And that's going on here. And it's ugly. Again, here's one example of the New Testament talking about grumbling and how it applies to us from this text. 1 Corinthians 10, sorry about that, 1 Corinthians 10, says, now these things in the Old Testament occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. 1 Corinthians 10, 9 and 11, I think, uh, 9, 10, 11 says, nor should we put Christ to the test as some of them did and then died from snake bites and don't grumble as some of them did and then were destroyed by the angel of death. These things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. So this was the particular thing that brought things to the head this time. Before they were complaining about water, before they were complaining about other things, here they're complaining, and they're complaining, they're grumbling because they're tired of the way things are going. Now, that can happen to you and me. But when we begin to speak against God, we begin to speak against his appointed leaders, friends, that's a serious deal. When we begin to speak against others. Now let me go on and say this. Notice what the consequences are. The Lord sends snakes that bite them and many die. The Lord sends snakes that bite them and many die. And this is unbelievable to me. He just says, okay, um, If you want to grumble, here's the snakes. Now, some people have said, why snakes? I don't know a lot of the history of this, but I do know from seeing some of the things from exhibitions with the pharaohs of Egypt is that they love snakes. Some of the headbands, you may remember, have a cobra in the center. And they believe that snakes, they worship snakes, they bow down to snakes, they thought snakes had incredible power, both for healing and, and sovereign authority. 
And so they had just said, why did you bring us out in the wilderness to die? Like, we want to go back to Egypt. So God says, okay, if you're going to talk like that, I'm going to give you an experience with some of what Egypt thinks is powerful. And they're, they're bitten. And, and many of them begin to die. And it is a desperate situation because they're bitten not just by unvenomous snakes, but by venomous snakes. They have poison in their system. And unless something happens, they're going to die. More are going to die. And in the middle of all this, if you're following along, what I want you to see is they confess their sin and Moses prays for them. They confess their sin and Moses prays for them. How do they do that? If you notice again, I think it's uh, again, verse seven, it says the people came to Moses and said, we sinned, we trespassed, we missed the mark, we did the wrong thing, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. Now, I noticed something about this. When they said, we sinned, they didn't just say, we sin, everybody sins, which is so common nowadays. They said, we sinned, when? That's big, that may help you. When you and I are thinking about we've gotten sideways with God or we've done something against God, you know the best answer? Humble yourself and confess it. Name it. Be very specific. Say, when. So God, when I talked to that person that way, I sinned against you. When I did this that you told me not to do, I sinned against you. When. I journal every morning, and when I do, one of the things I try and do is spend some time in confession. And I try and name things the way God names them. I'm so prone to rationalize, friends. I'm so prone to generalize. I'm so prone not to really deal with the consequences, with the personal responsibility I have, that I very much, I'm touched by how they said this. We sinned when we spoke against God and you, Moses. Wow. And you know what? That was the beginning of a turning point for them. And friends, that is the beginning of a turning point for any person. That's owning, taking responsibility and saying, the consequences are doing something in my life. They're not being wasted on me. They're doing something. Some of us would say, well, then why, why did they change their minds? They'd just been pretty convinced that God had ripped them off. Like, why did they change their minds? Can I just give you the short answer? Pain. Pain. C.S. Lewis has said this. I think he's right. He says, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And I've watched how pain can be redemptive in my life. There are times when God gets my attention and I suddenly see how messed up my value system was. That how I could suddenly become so entitled, so arrogant, so proud, so thinking I know better than God. The psalmist, I was reading this this morning, 
He writes in Psalm 119, verses 67, 61, and 75, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Now I obey your word. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. I know, Lord, that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. And so God was doing what a good God does. God was holding them accountable. God was allowing them to experience the consequences of their action. And as a result, they, they did something honorable as well. They confessed their sin, and Moses prays for them. Now notice, they ask that God will take the snakes away. God doesn't take the snakes away. But he does something important. Notice, if you're following along, he instructs Moses to make a snake and put it up on a pole. He instructs Moses to make a snake and put it up on a pole. Very interesting stuff. And one of the questions we have to ask is not, isn't this like against the second commandment of not making an idol in the form of anything? No, it's not. And I'll explain why. God is not going to urge them to look to it. He's going to urge them to look at it. And I'll explain that in just a moment. But if you're following along, the Lord says, anyone who is bitten can look and live. The Lord says, anyone who is bitten can look and live. Now, think about this. Is God having Moses make a snake and put it up in front of him to taunt them and go, here you go, you're already scared of it, I'll show you another one. No, he's not doing that. He's saying something powerful by putting it up on a pole. He put it up on a pole in a practical way so that everybody in the camp could see it. That anyone who looked at it could live. But also, he's doing something else. Once you put something up on a pole, that was a symbol of something being cursed and defeated. Some of you may remember if you read about King Saul who preceded King David. When King Saul and his sons were killed in battle, the Philistines, to gloat, took the bodies of those you know, kings and princes and hung them on their city wall so they could say, those are defeated foes. What's going on here is that he says, okay, these snakes have been biting you, but now I want you to see this snake in its bronze form is a defeated foe. What's been destroying you, I'm going to pronounce judgment on. But if you're willing to look at it, and you trust my word enough to look at it, I will help you live. The venom will not kill you. Wow. And so here's what I want you to see today if you see nothing else. Is that God both judges and provides a remedy for their sin. God both judges and provides a remedy for their sin. Friends, can I just say something to you as your pastor? I fear we live in a world that has taken the edge off the greatness of God. Our God judges sin. He's a just God. And I hope you're as glad about that as I am. Don't you want God to judge the atrocities of Hitler? Or do you want him to say, it doesn't matter what you do? Do you want to live in a world where he doesn't judge unrighteousness and sin? I don't. 
And to know that he will ultimately deal righteously with all that means a lot to me. But God both judges sin. That's why we must always take our sin seriously. Friends, if there's anything in us that's gotten loose in the turn with sin, we need to remember that God judges sin. This calls for reverent fear, which the Israelites had lost in that moment. But what's so amazing about God is while he judges sin, he also is a God who provides. He provides a remedy for sin. The same thing that had been judging them, that had been destroying them, he now turns into a provision, a remedy for their sin and makes it possible for them, rather than dying in their sin, to live. What a God. And here's what I want you to see if you're following along is that Jesus says he too must be lifted up as the snake was. Jesus says he too must be lifted up as the snake was. Are we saying that Jesus is a snake? No. He's better than the bronze serpent. He's better. See, the bronze serpent can only save them from venom, venomous bites, and only live you know, temporarily longer. Jesus came that we could have eternal life and be saved from the venom and the consequences of our own sinful choices, actions, and attitudes. He is the God who provides. And therefore, Jesus is saying to Moses, you don't understand, but the only way you can possibly be made right with God is if on the basis of what I'm about to do on the cross, you allow the Holy Spirit to do a new work in your heart and cause you to be born again, born from above, born anew, and become a new person. And therefore, I want to tie the Old Testament together so you understand that God has always had this intention. And even way back in the wilderness, he was a God who was judging sin, yet providing a remedy for it. And I am the better remedy. I am the one the Bible was always pointing to. I am the fulfillment. I am the better bronze serpent. Man, I'm so thankful. And if you're following along, he said this, that everyone who believes and looks to him may live. That everyone who believes and looks to him may live. If you look up here on the screen, John 640 that I've listed out there to the right, it says, for my father's will, is that everyone who, what's the next phrase, friends? Looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. So how do we respond to what Jesus said was being fulfilled in the event of the bronze serpent? Let me just bring this home with several questions for you and several thoughts. First, here's a question you have to ask yourself. Do I believe Jesus had to be lifted up? You know, Jesus said the Son of Man must be. It's not like maybe. It's not like, you know, here's another thing God's doing that's kind of, you know, it's an option for you. He said, look, the Son of Man must be lifted up. He had to suffer. He had to be lifted up. Why? Because the consequences of sin, as we saw last week, are real. And all of us have sinned. That means that all of us are dying. That means that all of us will die, will perish in our sins unless God provides a remedy for it. 
That means that you cannot save yourself. That means that you and I cannot be good enough to save ourselves from the consequences of our own sin. But even those intentions of thinking we can save ourselves are sin. And therefore, we need a savior. We need a remedy. We need a way of living. And so here's what Jesus said at one time in John 8, 24. That is why I said that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am the Messiah, the Son of God, you will die in your sins. Now let me just say again, one of my concerns as a pastor, and as I look at my own heart, is that there is this idea nowadays in our world that everybody's going to heaven. That it's all going to work out fine in the end. That no matter what you believe, as long as you're sincere, God will give you a pass. He will not judge your sin. Friends, as humbly as I can say it, that's a lie. It's a popular lie. It's a lie we all want to believe because we don't want to be held responsible for our irresponsibility and our willfulness and our rebellion. But it's a lie. Therefore, Jesus had to be lifted up. He had to be lifted up first on the cross to pay for the penalty and the punishment that we deserved. But he had to be lifted up also as a provision from God for our sin that we might also have our pride humbled by having someone else provide for us rather than us provide ourselves. And then he had to be lifted up after that through his resurrection, and then he was lifted up again by being, he ascended to the right hand of God where he now, he now is praying for us on our behalf. So he had to be lifted up. Do you believe this? Do you believe that he really didn't have to be lifted up, but he just said it? Because if you do, friends, you're never going to realize how much you need a savior. The second thing, though, is what does it mean to look? And here's just the best answer I can give. To look means to trust in and acknowledge him in all my ways. To trust in and acknowledge him in all my ways. The question is, did the look mean just a glance? Or did the look mean to look at intently? And that's what it means. And therefore, he said, everyone who looks at that bronze snake intently, not to worship, but to trust my word, that if you will, I will use that looking to save you. Now, here's the difference. They were commanded to look at the bronze snake, not in worship, but in obedience. We're commanded to look to Christ as worship and obedience. And to every person that looks to Christ, not just once for salvation, but in everything, that is life. That's why it means that when you and I go through different situations, we continue to learn how to look to Christ for life. Some of you know that my dad, being a pastor, when I was a little kid, and I now understand this because some of you know, you know, I've told you my mom tells me often that she's glad she let me live. I wasn't an easy kid to raise, okay? (laughs) But my dad, again, brought baggage into his parenting experience, and I've shared this before, and I've had his permission to share it, but he was pretty hard on me when I was a little guy. And one day, evidently, he had been hard on me in, a, in the kitchen of our home there, and my mom and his mom were standing there. His mom was visiting. And they said, Gary, you're so hard on Jeff. And then his mother said to him, you're just like your father. 
You couldn't have cut my dad any deeper than that. So my dad dismissed himself from the room, and he just, you know. Next morning, he spent time in prayer. He was looking to Christ, and he said, Lord, is this true? And the Lord impressed on his mind, it is true. You're hard on Jeff, just like your father was hard on you. See, my dad had promised he would never be like his father that way. And so he said, Lord, what do I do? And he said, look to me, and I will give you a love for Jeff and when you fail, I'll help you again, but look to me. He said that, that morning, he went outside and stood on the porch, and I was playing in the front yard as five or six years old, just like a little guy. And he said he looked at me with a love that he knew had come from Christ. How did that happen? Because he looked to Christ with his parenting. Friends, you and I are invited to look to Christ with our money to look to Christ with our jobs, to look to Christ with our schoolwork, to look to Christ with our relationships, to look to Christ with our health challenges, to look to Christ, to look to Christ. What are you looking at? Where are you looking? Is it Christ? This is what Jesus wants us to understand. And so as we come to the end here, let me just say that to look or not to look Jesus says is eternal life or death. To look or not to look is eternal life or death. So again, let me just review. Why did Jesus have to be up here on a cross even though he was righteous? Look at Galatians 3.13 if you would on the screen. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. What that means is Jesus became the cursed one, so that we would not be cursed. He took your curse. He took my curse. Does that make anybody else want to thank him? Does that make anybody else want to go, you're kidding me. You're kidding me that you would take what I justly deserve and you would be cursed for me in order that you could rise again and offer to me blessing instead of cursing. Praise his name. And so I want to just, I don't know if you've ever looked to Christ, but I want to close with a story of a man named Charles Spurgeon. Some of you, if you've been around church world for a while, you know that Charles Spurgeon was a pastor whose sermons are still being published today. He was a pastor in London. God used him in a powerful way. He had been the preacher's son and also a preacher's grandson, but he didn't get it. For all his Bible knowledge, nothing had been revealed to him clearly. And so he wrestled because he saw, he saw his behavior, he saw his attitudes, he saw his heart, and he knew something was not right. So listen to his testimony. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could walk no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. That was a kind of Methodist group. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I had heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. But that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. And if they could tell me that, I did not care how much they made my head ache. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose, 
at last a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really uneducated. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There I was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now look and don't take a deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth, uh, a, man needn't be worth a thousand pounds a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I, he said in broad Essex, many on ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some say we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. When he had gone to about that length and managed to spend 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. <laughs> However, it was a good blow. It struck right home. He continued, And you always will be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not once what, was, what else was said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed, so it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. There and then, the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away, and that moment, I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them, of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you shall be saved. So I want to just ask you, will you look at Christ? Will you look to Christ for life?
for everything. I want to invite you to bow your heads and pray and talk to God. And if you need to confess to him, confess. If you need to just with your heart in faith, look to him and say, thank you for judging and providing for my sin. But thank him. Call on his name. But take a few moments to look to Christ, both on the cross and at the right hand of God.